Welcome to Alert Radio, radio for people who want to change the world. This is the debut broadcast of Alert for the 2010-2011 season. I'm Michael Welch. And I'm Ashley Titterton. The latest September-October edition of Canadian Dimension magazine is now out on the newsstands. This issue delves into the controversy surrounding the G20 summit, including a brilliant editorial commenting on the tactics employed by summit protesters. But on today's program, we will be focusing on this issue's major theme, which is the ecological crisis and the challenge of building a broad-based social movement to address that crisis. On today's broadcast, we will be interviewing Clayton Thomas Mueller of the Indigenous Environmental Network and Elizabeth May, National Leader of the Green Party of Canada. But first, the alert headlines, followed by Around the Left in Seven Days. for the week of September 16, 2010. A universal prescription drug plan could chop more than $10 billion off Canada's annual health care bill, according to a new policy study that its authors say explodes the fallacy that such a plan is unaffordable. The report, released on Monday by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, concludes the existing patchwork of private and public plans in Canada is inequitable, inefficient, and costly. The report also finds that Canada is either the third or fourth most expensive country for brand-name drugs every year, after the United States, Switzerland, and Germany, because it deliberately inflates drug prices in order to attract pharmaceutical investment. The Harper government has tightened the muzzle on federal scientists, going so far as to control when and what they can say about floods at the end of the last ice age. Natural Resources Canada scientists were told this spring they need pre-approval from Minister Christian Paradis' office to speak with national and international journalists. The new media rules went into force in March and apply to so-called high-profile issues such as climate change and the oil sands. The documents, obtained by Post Media through a Freedom of Information request, show the new rules being so broadly applied that one scientist was not permitted to discuss a study in a major research journal without pre-approval from political staff in Parody's office. Hyatt Regency Hotel employees have staged another walkout as Toronto continues to host its annual International Film Festival. Unionized workers, represented by Unite Here Local 75, raised the picket line at 11 a.m. on September 12th after a series of unsuccessful bargaining attempts. They are demanding a contract that can better address the issues of workplace safety and better shift hours. The employees have been in negotiations since early August, but have had no luck. Sunday's one-day strike marks the third walkout since the Toronto International Film Festival started last Thursday. The U.S. Congress is poised to give its approval to the biggest arms deal in U.S. history when it signs off on weapon sales to Saudi Arabia worth an estimated $60 billion. The sale, under negotiation since 2007, is aimed mainly at bolstering Saudi defenses against Iran, which the U.S. suspects will achieve a nuclear weapons capability within the next few years. 
Some of the weapon systems, in particular upgraded weapon systems, are specifically related to the threat posed by Iran. Details have been leaking out in the U.S. media over the last few months, prompting angry denunciations from Tehran. Three Palestinians died on September 12th when the Israeli military fired shells into the Gaza town of Beit Hanun. The dead included a 91-year-old man and his teenage grandson. Israel said it began the shelling in response to rockets that were fired across the border from Gaza. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday the Israeli moratorium on new settlements in the West Bank will not stay in place after it expires later this month. A new report from the Israeli group Peace Now has found that 13,000 Israeli settlement housing units in the West Bank are ready for construction once the building moratorium ends on September 26th. A report released on September 13th claims that although there has been extraordinary progress in Africa in the past five years, most African people have not benefited from it. The Commission for Africa published the report ahead of a United Nations summit in New York this month that will review progress towards meeting the Millennium Development Goals. The report suggests that international donors need to increase aid to Africa by billions of U.S. dollars to promote development because new challenges such as climate change and the economic crisis have made poverty reduction more difficult to achieve. The Commission for Africa was set up in 2004 by Tony Blair. It is comprised of 17 members, including prominent African politicians. Cuba has announced radical plans to lay off huge numbers of state employees in order to help revive the communist country's struggling economy. Those laid off will be encouraged to become self-employed or join new private enterprises on which some of the current restrictions will be eased. Analysts say it is the biggest private sector shift since the 1959 revolution. Cuba's government currently controls almost all aspects of the country's economy and employs about 85% of the official workforce, which is put at 5.1 million people. As many as one in five of all workers could lose their jobs. To create jobs for the redundant workers, strict rules limiting private enterprise will be relaxed and many more licenses will be issued for people to become self-employed. English trade union delegates have voted to back joint industrial action if attacks on jobs, pensions and public services go ahead. The Trade Union Congress's annual gathering backed a motion which included calls to build a broad solidarity alliance of unions and communities under threat. The motion comes amid concern among unions about the speed and scope of the austerity program to reduce the £155 billion deficit. The motion rejected the idea that cuts were necessary to pay for the deficit and said they were a savage and opportunistic attack on public services, which goes far further than even the dark days of Thatcher. Rising long-term unemployment, especially among young people, poses the next big threat to the global economic recovery, the International Monetary Fund warned on September 12th. Slower growth is forcing governments to expand social safety nets and stimulate job creation even as they rein in finances. Olivier J. Blanchard, the IMF's chief economist, said, Countries that need to rebuild credibility should first reallocate spending to get the long-term unemployed and young people back into the labor market. 
Juan Somavia, the director general of the International Labor Organization, said 210 million people were looking for work around the world after the financial crisis and that 440 million jobs would need to be created in the next 10 years. Other countries, like Germany, have sought to suppress layoffs by getting labor unions, employers, and employees to agree to reduced wages and work hours when times are tough. In the United States, new census data is expected to show the number of Americans living in poverty soared last year. It is estimated one in seven Americans lived in poverty in 2009, the highest level since the 1960s. The data is also expected to show that blacks and Latinos were disproportionately hit by the economic crisis. The government of Swaziland has threatened pro-democracy activists with torture as tensions in sub-Saharan Africa's last absolute monarchy continue to grow. The warning that sipakatane, or beating people's feet with spikes, could be used against protesters was condemned by trade unions in the country after a week in which 50 protesters were arrested and several foreigners treated roughly and deported. Barnabas Dlamini, the Swaziland Prime Minister, was quoted in state media as saying the government would consider using it to crush dissent. King Maswati III of Swaziland has been criticized for leading a lavish lifestyle while most of his subjects endure poverty. He has 13 wives. Swaziland has one of the world's highest rates of HIV infection, with more than a quarter of those infected aged between 15 and 49. Honduras' pro-democracy resistance movement, known as the National Front of Popular Resistance, FNRP, has collected over 1.2 million signatures and counting, demanding a national constituent assembly that will mark an important step in their struggle towards the refoundation of their society and their country. In the last five months, volunteers from all the various groups and organizations that come together under the name of the FNRP have gone to villages, neighborhoods, cities, parks, and door-to-door -door all over the country to educate the Honduran people about the National Assembly and to collect the signatures. Despite widespread repression, murders, and torturing of resistance members, day-to-day -day the collection occurred. Given the severe repression, the FNRP reports that many were reluctant to give their signature for fear that they would later be identified and then threatened or killed for participating in the process. And those are your alert headlines for the week of September 16th, 2010. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 16th, 2010. To hear a report on the recent strike in France and for a discussion of class struggles in France, check out the public lecture on September 17th at 7 p.m. in room 2295 at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. Email Alana Clark at aclarke17 at gmail.com for more details. Toronto's inaugural bicycle-powered mobile music festival is happening on September 19th from 1.30 to 7 o'clock p.m. and will move from various parks in Toronto's West End before culminating at Dufferin Grove Park. Don't forget to wear your biking shorts. This festival is 100% audience-powered. Email torontobicyclemusicalfestival at gmail.com for more info 
or if you want to volunteer. Go to the Canadian Dimension website for more info, including a schedule of bands. Gidan Levy is a journalist with the Israeli newspaper Haaretz and has been covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in particular the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank for the past 20 years. He is fiercely critical of Israel's policies towards Palestine. From September 20th to 26th, Levy will be on a speaking tour hitting seven Canadian cities delivering a lecture entitled The Punishment of Gaza. He will speak in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Mississauga, Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. The tour is sponsored by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. For details, go to cjpme.org or the events page at canadiandimension.com. From September 23rd to 25th, a conference at the University of Toronto entitled Who Belongs? Rights, Benefits, Obligations and Immigration Status will explore the consequences of differential access to rights, benefits and obligations on the basis of immigration status and provide a framework to assist in analyzing how these distinctions should be made. The conference will address the meaning of citizenship, healthcare access for different categories of immigrants, Canada's international obligation to refugees, and much more. For more information, go to the events page at canadiandimension.com. The Inter-University Research Centre on Globalization and Work is organizing a symposium on international trade union action to be held at HEC Montreal on September 23rd and 24th. This symposium will tackle a variety of contemporary issues. What tools and resources are available to unions? How can we build a dialogue between northern and southern countries? How can we enhance workers' awareness with respect to international trade unionism? How can these actions improve the working conditions here in Canada and abroad? To find out more, go to the Canadian Dimension website. Should Canada criminalize criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic hate speech? The Canadian Parliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism thinks so. And later in the year, there will be an international conference in Ottawa with the goal of expanding the definition of anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel. On September 23rd, at the SFU Harbour Centre in Vancouver, come out to hear University of Guelph Professor Michael Kiefer and the Policy Director for the BC Civil Liberties Association, Michael Vaughan, discuss this pro-Israel current in Canadian policy. This meeting is co-sponsored by the Canadian Union of Postal Workers and organized by the Seriously Free Speech Committee. Admission is free. The lecture begins at 7.30. Professor Kiefer is also speaking in Winnipeg and other cities across Canada. The third annual Winnipeg Radical Book Fair will be held at the Broadway Neighborhood Centre on September 25th and 26th. The fair will kick off with the launch of 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance with author and activist Gord Hill at Mondragon in Winnipeg on September 24th at 7 p.m. Go to CanadianDimension.com for more details. And that is Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of September 16th, 2010. Clayton Thomas Muller is the Tar Sands campaign organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Clayton appeared on a Canadian Dimension panel at the People's Summit in Toronto leading up to the G20 protest last June. We caught up with him at his home office outside of Ottawa. Welcome once again to Alert Radio, Clay. Hey, thanks for having me and hello to all the listeners. 
Okay. Um, so let's start off now with the uh, the tar sands. Could you maybe remind us just how damaging is the tar sands to uh, indigenous peoples living in northern Alberta? Sure. Um, bottom line, the tar sands development that has been taking place in northern Alberta for the last fifty years, with the with the majority of the um, you know major operations happening in the last fifteen is uh, known as the world's largest and most energy, water, and CO2-intensive development ever in the history of mankind. Um, the deposit itself is spread over an area of the pristine boreal forest in the northern areas of the province, uh, an area that can be compared to the size of the state of Florida or compared to the size of the country of England and Wales. Um, Currently, right now, the ecological footprint of the massive open pit mines um, that exist up in and around the Fort McMurray Boomtown area, um, you know, uh, it represents a disturbed area roughly the size of Vancouver Island. Now, tar sands proponents, as well as the government of Alberta, have much more ambitious plans to develop in um, to mining operations in the other 80% of the untapped resources in the region, which will, which will, you know, not necessarily be the huge open pit mines that we currently see in the media almost daily here in Canada, but will be represented by a form of extraction used to get at deeper deposits that are not economically viable to mine uh, out, of the, uh, uh, out of the forested region there. Uh, called uh, steam-assisted gravity drainage. And this type of development will further fracture and destroy the boreal forest in that territory, uh, which is home to Cree and Dene and Métis populations that have utilized the Athabasca River and the surrounding ecosystem for subsistence and cultural needs for time immemorial. And um, this new form of extraction, this in-situ development that they're proposing, uh, will equate to thousands of kilometers of roads and pipelines and, and different uh, extraction sites and collector sites all throughout the region, um, you know, further putting stress on the wildlife, the people, and the ecosystem itself. How is that stress uh, manifesting itself in terms of, uh, you know, the way the, uh, the, the communities there are, uh, how the people are, are being affected directly? Well, recently, you know, I mean, there's been a massive public relations battle happening between, you know, First Nations, uh, NGOs supporting First Nations, and, of course, you know, oil sands uh, uh, proponents. Um, and, you know, what, what one, of the, one of the recent things that has come down has been a, a highly publicized report from world-renowned biologist Dr. David Schindler from the University of Alberta, which unequivocally... Um, you know, uh, you know, provided provided unequivocal proof that uh, that uh, you know where tar sands operations are happening along the Athabasca River, there are elevated levels of volatile organic compounds and heavy metals like mercury and arsenic, and of course, all of these things mixed together with 11 million liters of toxic affluent that's leaching every single day from the, the massive tailings ponds containment sites um, where they put all the waste created by tar sands extraction. Uh, so big you can see these things from outer space. Um, you know, what this study has proven is that tar sands equals more pollution for downstream communities. And the way that that's manifesting, of course, in local indigenous populations, 
um, like, for example, the community of Fort Chippewan, about 250 kilometers downstream from Fort McMurray, home to Miccosu Cree First Nation, Athabasca, Chippewan First Nation, is that these communities have seen um, elevated rates of cancer and other autoimmune deficiencies um, that, you know, are much higher than the rest of the Alberta population. Um, and, of course, this can be directly attributed to the subsistence practices that many still, um, you know, practice in, in, in uh, First Nations and Métis settlements. Uh, in and around the Athabasca region. And so because of the fact that people eat from the land, harvest medicines and, 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 and other pro, you know, animal pro, and plant products from the land, um, and they consume those things uh, as part of their way of life, they end up being much more highly um, mm-hmm. susceptible to the process of bioaccumulation. And, so, of course, this is why we're seeing, you know, these, these, these extremely elevated rates of cancer and, and other uh, related autoimmune diseases in native populations in northern Alberta. Now, the Indigenous Environmental Network, I mean, you've been uh, lobbying for some time to, uh, you know, to, to resist this uh, pull of the uh, tar sands development. And I- I'm wondering, uh, you know, given that the, the federal government and the provincial government seem to be doing everything they can to promote more, not less, tar sands development, how far is uh, your group willing to take things? Are you willing to contemplate uh, civil disobedience, for example? Well, I don't think it's a question of if we're willing to contemplate civil disobedience. IEN actively promotes the use of civil disobedience, um, you know, in this complex uh, battle against um, the world's most uh, uh, carbon-intensive climate crime that's taking place in northern Alberta. You know, we've um, actively worked with with many different organizations, and and as a matter of fact, just this uh, last uh, Wednesday when you know the uh, Senate, uh, <clears throat> the Senate Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi was in town here in Ottawa. You know we participated in an action on uh, right on the steps of Parliament where we where we actually dumped oil, whole mock oil, um, all over uh, a fellow activist uh, to you know to send a message directly to Nancy Pelosi that they should not be uh, allowing the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline from Alberta to Texas. Um, because of the grave, uh, you know, ecological uh, rationale, you know, the climate arguments, and as well as the forest protection arguments, and then most importantly, the human rights situation that's playing out in uh, communities who the federal government and the Alberta government are, uh, you know, absolutely ignoring. Now, Clay, at the panel pres- presentation that you presided over at the uh, the G20, the People's Summit in Toronto, you had said that the only way we're going to be able to break the power of big oil, King Coal, and the state is to build a social movement of profound and epic proportions and develop uh, a new economic paradigm that is based on justice and equity and puts the eco back in the economy. So let's uh, talk about that social movement. What would it consist of? And can you say more about that econ- new economic paradigm that uh, you mentioned? Well, basically what it comes down to is, you know, the current uh, model of, 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 you know, eternal expansion of our economic structure under this this whole U.S. hegemony or capitalist paradigm is not working. You know, we, of course, are hitting the inevitable glass ceiling of ecological limits. And the situation of, of, of 
you know, certain communities being sacrificed at the altar of economic development so that the privileged through can so that the privileged few pulling the economic and political strings can continue to get richer um, is is creating, you know, a situation that is extremely unbalanced all across the planet and it's definitely the case here in Canada, especially when we look at what's going on in First Nations communities compared to the rest of the country. Now, what I talk about when I say that, you know, we need to, you know, challenge the tar sands development head on here in Canada is because of the fact that what tar sands represents is the greatest consolidation of corporate power ever in the history of mankind. We have, you know, 20, of, including all of the major uh, private, uh, you know, major petroleum corporations on the planet, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP's getting involved in the game, uh, ConocoPhillips, I mean, the list goes on and on. They're all there in northern Alberta. We have the world's largest military superpower, the United States of America, you know, actively pulling strings behind the scenes to, you know, continue to have this uh, resource developed for its own energy uh, security for the next 150 years. We're seeing, you know, big oil being hardwired into the North American economy um, through infrastructure projects like the Enbridge Gateway Pipeline in northern BC, the reversal of the Trailbreaker Pipeline in Quebec, uh, the construction of new refineries and retrofitting of old refineries in the lower 48 to process this dirtier um, tar sands crude from the Athabasca region. So, you know, bottom line, what it comes down to is that, you know, we're presented with two paths. One is of scorched earth, one is of, uh, of, of, of a more greener, softer path. And I think it's up to us to make the decision which way we're going to go. Yeah, quickly, I uh, uh, just wanted to ask, because this is also very much a, a, a movement in solidarity with Indigenous peoples, could you maybe explain what, how you see Indigenous peoples fitting into uh, that growth of this new social movement? What did they bring to the new economic paradigm? Well, I don't... Uh, I just re- initial reaction to that question is first of all I don't see indigenous peoples fitting anywhere. I you know this social movement that I'm talking about is something that you know all groups that share a common uh struggle including labor including indigenous uh peoples movements including you know the student movements that exist in this country. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I see us coming together to challenge the tar sands because, bottom line, the tar sands is going to destroy Canada's economy and it's going to destroy the Earth's climate. Um, and all of our futures are, are wrapped up in that. And, the, you know, I think there's some, some statistics that everybody needs to be aware of, and that is that, you know, by 2016, we're talking five years from now, one out of every four worker in this country will be a First Nations Inuit or a Métis person. Um, so that means that, you know, one quarter out of every dollar made by that point will be going into the pocket of an indigenous person in this country. And, of course, as we all know, in today's political economy, you know, um, resources equals political power. And okay. so we're, we're, we're going to see a tremendous shift of economic, social, and political power to the most historically marginalized population in Canada in the next five years. Okay, Clayton, I'm sorry, I think we have to leave it there, but uh, thank you very much for uh, for joining us today on Alert Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Clayton Thomas Mueller, the Qatar Sands campaign organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network.
This is Michael Welch for Canadian Dimension Alert, and I am here with the leader of the Federal Green Party, Elizabeth May. So, good evening, Elizabeth. Good evening, Michael. So, uh, maybe we could start off. Uh, that recently, uh, Nancy Pelosi came up to Canada with uh, some concerns about the, uh, the tar sands, and Canadian politicians were lining up to defend the tar sands. Of course, uh, there are a lot of criticisms from the environmental sector and others about the tar sands. Where exactly uh, are, is the uh, Green Party sitting with regard to the tar sands and, and what should be done policy-wise? Well, the, the tar sands represent uh, a disaster on, ecologically, but they're also a disaster economically, and I wish we'd get a more clear-eyed assessment. The assumption that most politicians make, oh, this is some great engine of growth for the Canadian economy, uh, is not backed up by the, the facts. We are allowing ourselves, in, as Andrew Nikoforik has pointed out, to become a petrostate, depending on a petrodollar. Uh, the health of our economy depends on a diverse economy. It depends on a manufacturing sector being able to function. It depends on an agricultural sector. It depends on a diversified economy. And international economic experts have warned us that we are risking uh, what is generally called Dutch disease, which was what happened in, when the Netherlands first discovered offshore oil and allowed their economy to be sucked into oil. When you are sensible and put, take the money off the table, as Norway has done, take the money that's the revenue from oil and put it in a separate trust fund, you can protect your whole economy from becoming uh, changed and distorted by oil wealth. But we are in a situation right now where not only is the tar sands a disaster for the boreal forest ecosystem and polluting in vast ways and creating uh, greenhouse gases, it's the fastest growing sector of the Canadian economy in terms of greenhouse gases, even though uh, right now coal-fired power plants in Alberta produce more greenhouse gases. But it's actually distorting our economy in ways that are unhealthy. So what is the Green Party then proposing that we do? Are we talking a total moratorium or a moratorium on more development? What, what can be done politically? Well, federally, the federal government, although the Harper government has been eroding federal regulatory powers and federal jurisdiction on such projects, but the federal government w has the um, responsibility to approve licenses still. So the first step is to say, let's stop any expansion in this region. Let's ensure that we are reducing emissions, protecting tailings ponds, that we know what we're doing, reducing the amount of water used per barrel of oil. We're right now at about 1.3 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, the Green Party is not suggesting that we immediately stop doing that at all. We're saying, look, let's try to, let's have no new projects. And let's uh, make a very clear commitment to reducing the amount of energy and the amount of water per barrel of oil. Let's assess what the companies are doing in terms of pollution. And also, let's stop having oil revenue into the coffers of governments. Uh, so let's establish a real heritage fund the way Nor Norway actually has $400 billion in their heritage fund. But they did that based on imitating and modeling their plan on what Peter Lougheed had planned for Alberta, which Ralph Klein canceled, right? So right now, um, we're looking at the province of Alberta gets so little money in royalties because they're so beholden to the large multinationals that they're actually now in the province of Alberta getting more revenue from gambling and from uh, alcohol 
than they are getting from their oil revenues. And yet this one industry is somehow allowed to dictate our policy in a wide variety of public policy areas, of the climate crisis most specifically. But it's driving a lot of other public policy. And as I said, it's not just ecologically unhealthy, it's economically unhealthy. You mentioned the climate change uh, you know, specifically uh, in particular. Uh, I have, uh, there was a recently a, a letter that went out from um, uh, members of oh, Bill McGibbon of 350.org and uh, representatives from the Rainforest Action Network and from uh, Greenpeace USA. And, and I have a quote here. They're talking about the urgent need. In fact, here's a quote. Time is not on our side, so we've concluded that going forward, mass direct action must play a bigger role in this movement as it eventually did in the suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, and the fight against corporate globalization. And so I, I guess my question is, with the Green Party and, and your convictions about this, like how far are we going to go in terms of uh, trying to uh, you know, sanction, you know, are we willing to sanction uh, that form of civil disobedience? You, you understand the sentiments behind it. Can you throw your weight behind that uh, as a leader of the Green Party? And, and if not, well, how far are you willing to go given the urgency of the crisis? Greens around the world have never shied away from nonviolent civil disobedience when it was when it was called for. It was the Greens in Germany who took direct action steps t that led to the end of the Cold War. Uh, we are never we have never been a party that shied away from nonviolent. And this is really important. Nonviolent civil disobedience has a whole code of conduct around it, which is very clear. And it does include taking responsibility and accepting the results of actions, which means you're jailed for nonviolent civil disobedience. It does not mean random uh, acts. It certainly doesn't include things like smashing windows and storefronts, for example. But a direct action of great symbolism, a direct action that says no more coal-fired power plants. I mean, uh, we're, we're talking about would we shut down the tar sands in terms of the 1.2 million barrels of oil a day? Uh, that's not part of our policy right now. But to shut down all the coal-fired power plants, which is the larger quantity of greenhouse gases, we need to modernize our economy, we need to move in the right direction, we need to create jobs. I think there are ways to go about it that don't involve nonviolent civil disobedience. But what I would, I would absolutely agree with Bill McGiven. We are running out of time. If we don't ensure globally that greenhouse gas emissions stop rising and start falling by 2015, we will have committed ourselves to uh, scenarios of runaway global warming from which human civilization may not be able to recover. Uh, that, that is not a, a small risk. That is the largest scale risk that humanity has faced with the possible exception of nuclear war. And as I said, Greens have stood very, have been in the forefront of the peace movement, in the forefront of movements like uh, the women's action at Greenham Common, which was in, in nonviolent civil disobedience. And we would never criticize anyone who felt that that was the path they had to take. Now, what if we uh, sort of draw back and, and examine the whole uh, the economic question? Uh, it, it does seem to me that we are situated in a market-based economy in which economic growth is very much at the heart of it. And yet it's a, a basic green principle, which you yourself have articulated, that uh, infinite growth, exponential growth uh, on a finite planet is the, uh, the ideology of the cancer cells. So how does the Green Party stay true to its principles of sustainability and yet uh, accommodate uh, a market-based capitalist system which uh, insists on growth? Well, we can't insist on growth, and in fact, we have to really uh, examine the role of an economy, and it's a question of, of 
what is driving government decision-making. Right now we've become, government decision-making has become so beholden to the notion that what it wants to do is grow the economy as if that's what governments are about. And that's not what governments should be about. Governments should be about ensuring the health of a society and of taking care of its weakest and most vulnerable members. It should be about what is in the interest of the common good. And Gus Speth recently wrote about this, the for, uh, who's at Yale now, but former head of the United Nations Development Program. Governments have become far too compliant with large-scale economic interests. What the Greens are advocating is... Well, I just, for, forgive me for interrupting, but we, the financial system, the, the economic system itself, I mean, we have yes. lending institutions where there's interest that has to be yeah. paid for with increased economic activity. So that's very much in, in the economic realm, not just the political realm, no? No, but it, what I'm saying is that governments can't... Be, the, the key question is, what do, you know, what do governments exist to do? We know what corporations exist to do. They, they exist to make a profit for their shareholders. Governments don't exist to make profits for shareholders. Governments exist at the will of and the direction of the people who, who consent to be governed. And the, uh, the lopsided equation of so many politicians, which is that somehow societies exist in the interest of their economy. The other way around entirely, economies exist in the interest of societies. And so if you look at what kind of economic activity we need, and we, we firmly believe we need economic activity, we think we need to rethink the failed model of boom and bust economies driven by um, uh, incalculable greed and say that a steady state economy is far healthier for communities, far healthier for economies, because what has led us to the brink of the destruction of capitalism, but capitalism itself. And when capitalism has its head, and you see you know, unrest unrestricted levels of greed, and, and crazy gambling schemes of hedge funds, and people selling and buying and trading uh, paper of debt that really wasn't secured by anything of value, but by the time you sort of pyramided that debt around and around and resold it, I mean, that's the story of Lehman Brothers. That's the story of Goldman Sachs. And then even Goldman Sachs betting against the investments it told people to make. Extraordinary levels of essentially casino capitalism. Now, capitalism itself is, is just one way of having an economy work. What you need to do, though, is recognize that various – capitalism has never been – well, I shouldn't say never. Within the last hundred years or so, uh, no Western democracy has allowed pure capitalism or pure market forces. To do so would mean we would never have dealt with rules against child labor or minimum wages. There's always been restrictions around that. And our corporations are very creative, and they know exactly how to make money with whatever – strictures government and society place upon them. So let's just be clear about who's in the driver's seat. The people are in the driver's seat. Corporations exist as a privilege created by governments that allow them to have all the benefits of being this unnatural person that is able to do business in ways that make money. We're not trying to take that away from them as Greens, but, and there is a but, they must live up to their social contract. And in our view, a company like British Petroleum that has so violated its social contract, what do you do to penalize them? It's not enough to say, well, here's a, we're just going to, we're going to give you a fine. Fines for corporations of that size amount to licenses to pollute. We need to have effective sanctions that say if you violate your social contract, we will pull the plug. 
you will not exist as a corporation. That's only happened once. John Mansfield over the asbestos issue, that their, their license to exist was pulled. It's essentially capital punishment for corporations that violate their social contract. So there's a whole set of pieces in terms of how we see the world unfolding. Uh, we need economic activity. We want more jobs. We want more people employed making things that really matter in a greener economy. So we want to see the kinds of things they've done in Germany with renewable energy creating 300,000 new jobs. That growth in that sector is quite a different thing in our view from this notion of unlimited growth that we constantly drive everything based on a growing GDP. GDP is not a particularly useful measurement, rather measure you know, genuine progress indicators that will include good healthy economic activity. It will include good healthy economic activity from Corporations operating within a capitalist model that actually make profits, but they need to stay within the bounds of a society that says, our rules say you can make your profits, but we're putting this kind of a price on carbon. That'll be the right kind of signal to let them know, make your profits on solar, make your profits on geothermal, make your profits on products that don't include embedded toxic chemicals that increase our cancer rates. There are many ways to send the right signals, and that's, to us, the key thing. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time, Elizabeth May. Thank you, Michael. That was Elizabeth May, National Leader of the Green Party of Canada. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. This week, something completely different than we've ever done before. We're playing a whole bunch of bluegrass and old-time music, and one of the reasons I picked it is partially because of the mythologies about bluegrass and the people who like bluegrass, and of course, I love bluegrass because I play the banjo and I know the music pretty well, but one of the things I never have done before is sat down and listened to it uh, for political content, to see if there was any kind of germ of uh, of uh, left-wing or uh, alternative thought. You know, with the, with the Tea Party movement and, and the Republican Party growing again in the States, things like this kind of... Uh, you, you have to not be afraid... With things like the Tea Party movement growing in the United States, you have to understand that the United States is not homogeneous, that there's all kinds of, of different things, and especially in bluegrass. You know that the traditional, the most famous bluegrass group almost of all time, Flat and Scruggs, broke up over the Vietnam War. Lester supported George Wallace, and Earl, well, he was a Democrat, played the banjo, and was against the war in Vietnam. So this is not a, a homogeneous kind of right-wing mentality that exists within the world of bluegrass. And here's a really good example. Here is the Nashville Bluegrass Band with Waiting for the Hard Times to Go. My name, it don't matter. You don't know me, no how. But I wish you would listen to what I'm saying now. I need someone to talk to, but I want you to know. I ain't putting you down, but I don't like this town. Just waiting for the hard times to go. I came here from Fresno, and that is my home. 
There's a real, uh, a real interesting um, sort of consciousness within this group of people. Here, once again, is the Nashville Bluegrass Band. Nowhere to go, no one I know, feeling so helpless and alone. Moving along, shuffle and roll, that's the homeless walls. Feeling abused, holding my shoes, I'm overlooked yesterday's news. Hunger that gnaws without a pause, that's the homeless walls. The needed do without The dancers keep on dancing While the music's fading out Every day bodies that sway 
Looking for shelter, some place to lay Not knowing when they'll find it again That's the homeless walls
Nashville Bluegrass Band with One More Dollar, and before that, The Homeless Waltz. One of the things about bluegrass is that it owes its origin to old-time music, which, of course, owes its origin to British and Scottish and Irish music, and uh, and the singing, the, the traditional style of singing, the high tenor singing, is very much part of the original kind of uh, transition of, of how language changed songs and moved across the ocean and stuff. But the thing about old-time music is that old-time music is built entirely within the human experience of the, of the mountain people. And here's a really good example of that. Here's a song called The West Virginia Mine Disaster. Say, did you see him going? It was early this morning. He passed by your houses on his way to the cold. He was tall, he was slender, and his dark eyes so tender. His occupation was mining, West Virginia his home. It was just before twelve, I was feeding the children. Ben Mosley came running to bring us the news. Number eight is all flooded, many men are in danger, and we don't know their number, but we fear they're all doomed. So I picked up the baby and left all the others to comfort each other and pray for our own. There's Jimmy, fourteen, and there's Tom, not much younger, their own time soon be coming to go down the black hole. Oh, if I had the money to do more than just feed them, I'd give them good learning, the best could be found, so that when they grow up, they'd be checkers and weighers and not spend their time drilling in the dark underground. Now what can I say to his poor little children? And what do I tell his old mother at home? And what do I say to my heart that's clear broken? To my heart that's clear broken if my darling is gone. Say, did you see him going? It was early this morning. He passed by your houses on his way to the coal. He was tall, he was slender, and his dark eyes so tender. His occupation was mining West Virginia, his home. 
That little piece of tragic Americana, the West Virginia mine disaster, was performed by the Pilot Mountain Bobcats. And today to finish a little segment on, on bluegrass that we've been kind of jokingly called calling Bluegrass for Commies, is one of my very, very favorite singers. Here singing Shaman's Vision is Peter Rowan. And the old gods died in the countryside still sleeping When the drumming stopped And the old gods died in the countryside still sleeping Black shadows on blue water show for today. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here this time next week. You can hear us again on CanadianDimension.com or on our podcast on Rabble.ca. Our executive producer is Saigonic. Technical production by Selena Serbanuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. 
Seven Days Around the Left was prepared by Ben Wood. Mitch Podolik for Music is the Weapon. I'm Ashley Tierton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine.